uh, George offered me this opportunity to speak a few weeks ago. Um, little did we know that it was probably all in God's timing. Uh, George and Cynthia have had a, a very much roller coaster week. Uh, it's been a busy week for them uh, with the passing of Cynthia's mom. And so please uh, continue to pray for them and remember them in your prayers. As they said, this is the first time they've lost somebody in their family. So I'm going to start off with uh, just asking you a question. Have you ever been afraid? I mean, really afraid? Afraid of what was going to happen to you? Afraid of something or someone or some potential situation? So afraid that you became anxious or embarrassed or ashamed? There are so many things that we as people fear and are afraid of. I have a short list of examples. Mysophobia is a fear of dirt. Hydrophobia is a fear of water. Claustrophobia is a fear of confined spaces. Xenophobia is a fear of strangers. Nyclophobia is a fear of the dark or darkness. And then listen to this one. Triskaidekaphobia. I had to practice that one. Triskaidekaphobia is a fear of the number 13. Really? You get the point. There are hundreds of these specific fears. 25% of people say they have experienced intense fear and trembling in social situations. 40% of people express an extreme fear of an object or situation. For women, it's the fear of snakes. For men, it's the fear of being buried alive. 20% of people say they have some degree of fear of being in either a crowded or a wide open space. Research has found the following stats regarding what we were afraid of. 58% of us are afraid of the dentist. 22% the doctor. Rats, 58%. Now careful with stats. You can't, just because they're both the same percentage doesn't mean they're the same thing. But rats, 58% as well. Cockroaches, 23%. The tax man, 57%. Now you could put those two together, rats and the tax man. <laughs> and we only fear God, 30% of us. From all this, we can see that we are fearful beings. For some of you, it may be that you fear storms, some extreme heights, traveling in airplanes, or even dogs. And for some of you, it may be even this, public speaking. Some of us have hidden fears, fears that will motivate us or demotivate us. The fear of failure causes many people to never start or even try anything that is not completely safe. The fear of rejection makes us afraid to do anything that could draw criticism or give someone a chance to laugh at us. There are generally two kinds of fear. The first is fear that is good. That fear keeps us from doing things like driving 200 kilometers an hour, picking up a rattlesnake, jumping off the side of a tall building, or any other foolish thing that you can think of. And then there's the second fear. That's a harmful fear. That is called the spirit of fear. And this fear paralyzes us. It keeps us from doing things we could do or should do. Perhaps you have a harmful fear or a spirit of fear that you need to overcome. Every one of us has likely had the occasion in our lives, including me, when we have been afraid or ashamed to speak of Christ or to be linked with Christ. 
Perhaps we were embarrassed. Perhaps we were afraid that we'd be rejected. Perhaps we were afraid that we didn't have the adequate words to say. Or perhaps we were afraid that people would say, that's not consistent with what I know about you. So whether it's at work, at school, or in your social contacts, the fear, we've all had that fear of embarrassment or rejection or worrying about putting our position or our reputation in jeopardy because of a strong identification with the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, however if we're going to be successful in serving the Lord, we have got to get to the place where we have victory over that shame or that fear. Now, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy, if you want to turn there. 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, and it seems that Timothy also seemed to have a fear or fears that he needed to overcome. So let's have a look, and turn with me now to 2 Timothy, chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 to 14. So if you could please stand with me, if you're able. Second Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, it dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. Father, we thank you for the good news that it contains of the gospel through Jesus Christ. Father, help us to just uh, set aside the concerns and the cares and the activities of this past week 
and to focus on what you would have for us this morning. We ask this now in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Before we have a look at this passage, I think it's very important to know and understand the context in which this was written. The year is around A.D. 66, 67. So Jesus was born roughly A.D. 0. Uh, so it's been 66 or 67 years, or 30, years after, 30 to 35 years after Christ has ascended. Already, there is widespread persecution of Christians. Paul, who is the author of 2 Timothy, is in a Roman prison. It's a dungeon, actually. Why? Because three years earlier, there was a great fire in Rome. This fire burnt not only the wooden shacks of the poor, but many of the stone mansions of the rich, as well as the public buildings and pagan temples and shrines. The Roman people were furious. And popular thought was that Nero himself had set the fire. So Nero, in order to deflect the blame from himself, accused the followers of Christ of having started the fire. And a great persecution against Christians broke out. Wherever Christians are persecuted, then also the known leaders are intensely sought, and so Paul was arrested on false charges. And he mentions that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that he was treated as a criminal. Now, Paul was in prison before. In his earlier imprisonment, he was accused of heresy by the Jews, but was still allowed to preach freely to those who visited him. He was basically only under house arrest, and he was looking forward to being released. However, when Paul wrote this, his second letter, to Timothy from prison, he was being persecuted by the Romans, and he could only be visited with great difficulty, and he was expecting death at any time. In fact, all of his friends had abandoned him, except Onesiphorus and Luke. And you can read about that in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. Now, during Paul's earlier imprisonment, he wrote the letters referred to as the prison epistles, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. But during this, his last imprisonment, he wrote only one book, and that's the book of 2 Timothy. And it's surprising that he was able to even do that, considering the conditions that he lived in. This Roman prison, as I mentioned, was a dungeon. It was damp, and which is the reason Paul asked for Timothy to bring his coat and to come before winter. This prison was much different than the earlier imprisonment that he had faced several years ago. The earlier imprisonments, he was under, as I said, he was under house arrest. But this time, the Roman emperor Nero, who had falsely accused the Christians of setting Roman fire, had Paul, as a Christian, thrown into the dungeon. This dungeon was a circular pit or a hole with a diameter of about 30 feet. It was uh, lined, the walls and the floor and the ceiling were all lined with stone. And it would contain up to 30 or 35 other prisoners. The only light for this dungeon was a hole about the size of a manhole or maybe a little bigger. The only place for light was just that manhole in the top. So you can imagine it was dark. And against one section of that circular dungeon was a door that could be lifted. Uh, yeah, and that door was there, sorry, for execution purposes. As I mentioned, there could be up to 35 prisoners in this dungeon. So what they did was they would open this door, and running alongside this dungeon was the uh, city sewage system. The sewage would run into this dungeon, 
drown all the prisoners, and then wash them back out. And then the door would be shut, and then the, uh, the dungeon drained, and it was ready for another 30 to 35 prisoners. Now, traditionally, this prison is known as the Mamertine Prison, and you can go see it in Rome. It was a place that the Romans used for the incarceration of serious criminals of the time. So you can imagine the environment that Paul is in. It's cold, it's dark, it's damp, it's likely smelly, and Paul is here awaiting his execution along with the other prisoners. It's a very moving experience to think about it, but you can imagine also being filled with 30-plus bitter, angry criminals about to be executed. Now, Paul was not drowned in sewage. Instead, he was taken out of that place, and his head was placed on a block. And with an axe, he was beheaded. And at the same time that he was beheaded, in an act of public display of hatred for the Christ that Paul taught, the Romans yelled, We will not tolerate the teaching of Jesus Christ, nor anyone who represents him. That was the end of Paul. So 2 Timothy is Paul's last will and testament. He knew his time of departure was near and that his earthly ministry and life were soon to end. And he mentions that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who at the time was living in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, and which in those days was considered a fair distance away from Rome. Timothy was Paul's representative at the church in Ephesus, and was helping Paul set up and establish the church there. And we get clues from this uh, letter that Timothy is facing trials and opposition and is possibly in danger of quitting his ministry. He is timid, scared, afraid, feeling alone. And remember, he is young and uncertain, and he's probably overwhelmed. So Paul writes this letter. Paul, in the conditions that he is in, facing death, writes to Timothy. Timothy is afraid. His father in the faith is in prison in Rome and is going to be executed. Paul has asked him to come and visit as well. So Timothy is thinking, should I go or should I not go? He could face death for associating with Paul and identifying himself as a Christian. At the same time, Timothy is also facing criticism locally in Ephesus. There are those who think he's too young, and Paul warns him to avoid foolish arguments and to be careful of Alexander, the metal worker. The church at Ephesus has fallen into corrupt theology and ungodly behavior, heresy, apostasy, and even persecution. Timothy is young and unsecure and unsure. We can feel his doubt, his questions, and the turmoil going on in his mind when Paul writes to him. In contrast, Paul is incarcerated in a dungeon, about to be executed, and living with some very dangerous criminals. And he writes to Timothy, who is not in jail, who is free and leading a church, because of his concern for Timothy, about his life, and about how he will respond to the pressures around him. And so Paul tries to encourage Timothy to take heart and not to be afraid and not to be ashamed. What a contrast. This underscores what kind of man Paul is and what type of faith he had. Paul is a man who is sure of his faith and of the one that he has placed his faith in. Paul was a man who practiced what he preached. Remember, Paul wrote Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, 
but in everything, through prayers and petitions, let your requests be with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Paul also wrote 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18, Be joyful always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So Paul is living what he preached. So what does someone who knows that his or her life is almost over say to someone who is younger in the faith? George mentioned last week that we, when we know that our life will soon be over, that all pride, fear, and shame disappear. And he quoted Steve Jobs. I lost a brother about eight months ago, and our last conversation before he passed was not about the weather. Was not about the weather or about his work. It was about his eternal future and his destiny. So with that picture in mind, let's take a closer look at this text and see what Paul has to say to Timothy. What does a man who knows he is going to die have to say? What information does he want to relay? So the first thing, let's turn to the text. The first thing that Paul does in verses 1 to 4 is to gently motivate Timothy. He reminds Timothy of five things that he should already know. I'm just going to go through those five things very quickly that Paul says to Timothy to initially just to gently encourage and motivate him. In verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Why does Paul tell Timothy something that he already knows? That he is an apostle. Well, it was to remind him that he is an apostle, but Paul also knew that this letter was going to be read to Timothy's uh, congregation and that this would give Timothy authority to resist those who are going against him and what Timothy is trying to do there in Ephesus. I also think that he is telling Timothy that what he is about to say are not just suggestions from a loving friend, but also inspired commands from an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul was not to be seen only as a close companion, but also as an authority in Timothy's life. Now, Paul also says in the second half of the verse, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. I think even more importantly, Paul says this to remind Timothy that what he is what he is, and he is where he is, by the will of God, and according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. That is according to the gospel. Paul was where he was because he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. He is in the will of God, and he is an apostle according to, or in conformity to, the gospel. Paul's apostleship was because of the gospel and in conformity to the gospel. In other words, the gospel was the reason for and the measuring stick of Paul's apostleship. Everything Paul did was because of the gospel. We need to realize that as well. As Christians, we need to realize that as we live our lives, it's all about the gospel. It's not about us. We need to make sure we are in the will of God. It's not about how good or bad our situation is, but rather if we are in the will of God. We're going to talk about that a little more later. Then look at verse 2. He says, To Timothy, my beloved child. The 
the word beloved is the most, uh, in the Greek, is the, most, the strongest word available to him to express his love to Timothy. It was the most endearing term that Paul could use. So he assures Timothy that he is near and dear to him and that what he's about to say is out of a real and sincere love for him. Then he turn, extends to Timothy in verse, uh, the second half of verse 2. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace are usual greetings in Paul's letters, but here he adds the term mercy, only here in the pastoral epistles. Grace, as we know, is God's undeserved, unmerited favor toward us, and mercy is God's consideration of us due to the effects of sin. Together, because of God's mercy, he extends his grace, and because of his grace, God can also extend his mercy. But why add mercy here? Did Paul think that Timothy was going to need mercy? Well, we don't know for sure, but likely yes. Then Paul adds the term peace. This is a peace regardless of the circumstances. Many of us, of us have, as Christians have peace with God, We've confessed our sin and claimed Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but we don't have the peace of God. Paul clearly set forth and reminds Timothy of the blessings that every believer has available to them in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace. And then in verse 3, Paul says, I thank God for Timothy and what God has done for him through Timothy. He encourages Timothy by letting him know that he's being prayed for night and day. And then in verse 4, Paul says that he would be filled with joy if Timothy would come one more time. Again, he is saying how much he loves Timothy. Now, all these things Timothy already knew. None of this was a surprise to Timothy, but it was good to be reminded once again. Timothy... This reminder would fill Timothy with joy and would inspire him and motivate him to follow in the footsteps of his beloved teacher and friend and also would motivate him to listen to everything else Paul had to say. So let's look at what else Paul had to say uh, to Timothy. What does a dying man or a man that knows he only has a few days left say to someone? What are, going to, uh, are his last words going to be? So Paul moves now from gentle motivation to strong encouragement, and he, with this strong encouragement, he includes some imperatives or commands, things that Timothy needed to do. So I'm going to spend some more time on this. How does Paul encourage young Timothy? Well, let's look at, there's eight things that Paul reminds Timothy of, so to encourage him. Look at verse 5. Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. If Paul is trying to encourage Timothy, why mention his grandmother and his mother? Well, what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to remind Timothy of his rich Christian heritage. He reminds him that the sincere faith that is in him was first in his grandmother and then mother, grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice and now is in him also. Paul even mentioned his own spiritual heritage in verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve as it did my ancestors. Paul was very appreciative of his religious heritage, as should all those of us who are brought up today in a Christian home. Paul named Timothy's mother and grandmother, 
as an example of the, fact, of the effect that parents can have on their children and their grandchildren. I want to tell you that we are not living this Christian life alone. We're not the first to fight the good fight. We are not the first Christians to suffer for this cause of Christ. Remember Hebrews 11, heroes of the faith, and especially Hebrews 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with perseverance. We have a great cloud of witnesses. Our spiritual heritage is watching in a symbolic way. We are surrounded by the saints of the past in a unique way. And it's not that uh, the faithful who have gone before us are actual spectators, but that we should run the race as if they actually are watching. We are to be inspired by the godly examples these saints have set during their lives. These witnesses are those past lives of faith These witnesses are those whose past lives of faith encourage others to live that way too. That great cloud of witnesses indicates that the millions of believers who have gone before us bearing witness to the life of faith, we now live. So as Christians, we need to remember our heritage. All of those who have gone on before us in the faith, perhaps our parents, perhaps not, perhaps our grandparents, but for sure, all of the other faithful men and women who lived before us, our ancestors in the faith, who were not ashamed of their faith, who stood up for their faith, and for some who even died for their faith. I think it's important to read biographies of the great heroes of the faith. They are so encouraging. So Paul says to Timothy, remember the faith of your mother and your grandmother, how they lived their lives, how they stood firm in the faith. Remember, Paul, uh, Timothy's father was not a Christian. He was a Gentile, and so Timothy was influenced by the Christian faith of only his mother and his grandmother. Parents, if you want to raise Christian children, I've read that there are four things you need to do as parents. Fathers, you need to talk to your children about, your faith, about faith issues. Mothers, you need to talk to your children about faith issues. Thirdly, you need to have regular family devotions together. And lastly, you need to do service things together as a family. Don't underestimate the effect that you can have on your children regarding their faith. Although salvation cannot be inherited from our parents, there is a household principle in the scriptures. It appears that God loves to save entire families. And don't leave it up to the church. It's not the church's responsibility. It's yours. So Paul reminds Timothy that he is not alone in his Christian walk and that he is to remember the faithfulness of those who have gone on before him. And let's look at the second half of verse 5. Then Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Do you ever wonder if your faith is real or genuine or if it is strong enough? The Apostle Paul has just told Timothy that his faith is sincere. Paul has said that his faith is real, unhypocritical, and is the same faith that he observed in his mother, his grandmother, and all those who believed before him. There was nothing phony about Timothy. He was genuine. Now, if I had the Apostle Paul telling me that my faith was sincere, 
I would be really encouraged. If I was Timothy, I would be very encouraged. How do we know if our faith is real? How do we know if it is sincere, if it is genuine? How can we tell? How do we know if we have a sincere faith, if we love the Lord Jesus enough? It will be by our fruit, will it not? It will be by how we live our lives. Jesus said, if you love me, then obey my commandments. George preached on this in, in John chapter 14. Jesus said it three times in verses 15, 21, and 23. If you love me, then obey my commandments. I pray that our attitudes and behaviors reflect the truth that we say we believe. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I'm sure that is what Paul saw now in Timothy. He lived out what he said he believed. Now let's look at verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For what reason? He says, for this reason. Well, because of Timothy's spiritual heritage and his sincere faith, which Paul has just commended, he wants to remind him of something. He says, for this reason I remind you. He says to fan into flame the gift of God. Now, to fan into flame literally means to keep the fire alive, to kindle it afresh, to fan the embers into flame, to not let them die out. So what was he to fan into flame? It says to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. What is this gift? It's the same gift that we all have. It's a spiritual gift that we have received at the moment of salvation. These gifts are divine enablements for effective service of the Lord. When Paul says through the laying on of his hands, it may mean that Paul laid his hands on Timothy at the time of his conversion. Some commentators think it could refer to a later time when Paul was given a special gift, but we do not know for sure. However, the admonition to Timothy is the same. Our divine giftedness, which we all have, is to be continually fanned into flame. Now, what does that mean? How do we fan into flame our gift? Well, we must regularly exercise our gift, or it will atrophy from neglect and disuse. Every believer must genuinely devote himself or herself to serving the Lord before his giftedness can become truly evident or effective. So how we know what our gift is, doesn't matter. We simply need to get to work and serve the Lord. I heard last week that Brenda Sheridan was looking for help in the coffee house before church. Now, if you are not serving, maybe this would be a good place to start. It may be your gift or it may not, but you won't know until you try. We need to get to work serving the Lord. Or you could speak to any of the other stewards. They may need help as well. When our heart's desire is to please the Lord, the Lord will guide us by that desire into the specific areas of service for which he has gifted us. He will give us desires that correspond to our gifts. When we begin to function in the area in which God has gifted us, our boldness in service will grow. So he wants Timothy to use his gift and he will be encouraged and become bold. 
Nothing gives us more courage than knowing we are in the Lord's will and exercising our gift in the power of the Holy Spirit. The product of sincere faith is faithful service, and the heart of faithful service is ministering using our gift, which everyone has as a Christian, for the Lord. Now, one commentator said that apart from ministering our gift, our life is worthless. Does that motivate you to serve and find your gift? That may be true. It's not from Scripture. It may be true. It may not be. He said, Our sole purpose as Christians is to obey and serve the Lord through the gift which he has blessed us with, so that the body may be built up to be effective in evangelism. Are we serving? Now Paul goes on in verse 7. He said, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul is building up momentum here as he writes to Timothy. He reminds Timothy of his spiritual heritage, of all those who have lived life of faith before him, of his ancestors in the faith, and then he reminds Timothy that that same faith that resi resides in him as well, and, and because of he is a genuine believer, he reminds him that he has a gift which he is to use, which he is to exercise and use in service to the Lord. And then Paul builds on all that again, all that again and he uses the word for. Now that word could also be translated because. Because God gave us a spirit not of fear. He reminds Timothy of his divine resources. He says, use your gift because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. This verse hints that Timothy may have been fearful or timid. It may have been because of what was happening around him. It could have been because of the persecution from within his church, or it may have been because of the general persecution of the church. We don't know for sure. Now, spirit refers to an inner quality of life or virtue. And Paul says to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, timidity. And actually, a better translation is from that Greek word is cowardice. God has not given us a spirit of cowardice. If you have a spirit of fear, or if you are timid or even cowardly about living the Christian life, you need to know your timidity did not come from God. It's your own creation. Rather, what did God give us? What did God give us through the Holy Spirit? The first is power. This is a power of ability. We need this power to serve. This power is productive and it is effective. And it allows us to be effective in his service. He provides his power to accomplish his purposes through us. Unlimited strength is at our disposal. And then he said he gives us love. Now this is agape love, which is the highest level of love. This love is unconditional and always seeks the highest good of the other person. It's not necessarily affectionate love and does not require feelings in order to act. It's the same love mentioned as the fruit of the Spirit, and it cannot be achieved by human determination. It originates from God 
and it's available to only those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. This love casts out fear. So again, Timothy is reminded not to fear. And then lastly, he gives us self-control. This could also be translated sound mind or self-discipline. He has the idea of a self-controlled, disciplined, and properly prioritized mind. The believer must have a disciplined life. There is nothing spiritual about an undisciplined life. Life is like a race, as I already mentioned in Hebrews 12, and Paul also calls it a race in Philippians 3. We must exercise self-control and self-discipline as we run this race, no matter how bad our circumstances, we are to maintain balanced judgment and act soberly. So the effective Christian worker must have the power of the Holy Spirit, but that power must be expressed in a loving spirit or it may do damage, and often the deciding factor between success and failure is the matter of self-discipline. Or to say it another way, we have the power to be effective in his service, we have love to have the right attitude toward him and others, and we have discipline to focus and apply every part of our lives according to his will. God has provided everything we need for everyday faithful living and service at the moment when we first believe. So Paul encourages Timothy by reminding him of these basic truths. But now Paul sums it all up, and he says in verse 12, Oh, sorry, verse 8, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul commands Timothy, do not be ashamed. In light of his heritage, his faith, his gift, and his virtues, which he has received through the Holy Spirit, Timothy is urged or commanded to not be ashamed. Paul is saying there is no good reason. As I mentioned earlier, to be a Christian during this time not only brought universal criticism, but frequently persecution, imprisonment, or even death. It was a day when preaching the gospel was a crime. Even to be associated with any of its leaders could be costly. Yet Paul commands Timothy, do not be ashamed. And then he gives them the greatest reason not to be ashamed and not to be afraid. What is that reason? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. Paul urges Timothy to suffer along with him for the sake of the gospel, and even this was according to the power of God. Paul has indicated that God is still on his throne, still in control, and will share his power when we need it as we suffer for the gospel. As Christians, we're not selling used cars. We're not selling feed. We're not selling the latest gadget. In fact, we're not selling anything. We're proclaiming the greatest story ever told about the greatest man who ever lived who gave the greatest gift there ever was. It's all good news. We see Paul here at the end of his life having no regrets for what he had suffered and even encourages others to suffer along with him. Paul would have done it all over again. He was willing to suffer whatever necessary in order to be able to proclaim the gospel. 
Paul tells Timothy to be encouraged because he has an opportunity to suffer as he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Paul, in verses 9 and 10, whenever Paul is given a chance to talk about the gospel, he wants to give us the gospel. And in verse 9 and 10, he does that. By the power of God, who saved us and called us to holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God has called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but for his own purpose and grace, which was determined before the beginning of time. This gospel has been revealed through Jesus Christ. Paul was not teaching Timothy anything new here, but simply reminding him of the cardinal, well-known truths of the gospel. These are truths that should encourage every believer including us, to be faithful and to be courageous in our Christian witness. Remember, we're not selling anything. We're proclaiming the good news. Then Paul throws in this statement in verse 11 and 12a. He says, For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Paul was called to be a preacher, and an apostle, and a teacher, and that is why he suffers. He is saying that we are called to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of God's purpose and grace. Paul was called to be these things, but he is in the purpose and will of God. Folks, we are going to suffer, but we must remain in the will of God. Some of us are suffering because we're not in the will of God, wouldn't it be better to suffer in the will of God? In chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that if you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted, you will suffer. This is part of the call to a holy life. We need to accept this fact, find strength in it, and be encouraged by it. So Paul has encouraged Timothy by reminding him of his heritage, his faith, his spiritual gift, the virtues available through the Holy Spirit, and lastly, that what he's proclaiming is the greatest news known to man, the gospel. He says because of that gospel and because he proclaims the gospel is why he suffers. And then Paul adds the word but. Look at 12b, the second half of verse 12. But I am not ashamed. Now anytime there's the word but, we need to pay close attention. Paul has just told Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel and then gives him a condensed version of the gospel and then says, that's why I'm suffering. Paul has invited Timothy to suffer along with him. And then Paul said, even though he is suffering, he's still not ashamed. And why? This is one of my favorite verses. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now, in the Greek, that can be translated also entrusted to him. Either way, Paul is convinced that God is strong enough to enable him to be faithful to his apostolic calling in spite of his sufferings, which attended, which attended it until the day when he'll be summoned to render his final account. Paul wasn't ashamed. 
He says, for I know whom I have believed, not what he's believed, whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me or entrusted to him. In the Greek, it just says, guard the deposit. The deposit is his teaching, his apostolic work, his converts, his life. They will all remain safe, even through death. Do you know who you have believed? Or do you only know what you believe? Is Christ simply something you believe about? Or you believe that he existed? Or is he someone you know, trust, and believe on with your whole heart and your whole life? Now Paul wraps up this section by reminding Timothy in verses 13 and 14 and giving him more imperatives, two more imperatives. He says to follow his example in teaching sound words and to guard the deposit. What are the sound words in the deposit? Well, they are the gospel and biblical truth. In other words, stick to the gospel in its correct interpretation. We are to defend the truth with faith in God's help through the Holy Spirit and to do it, do it in a loving manner. Although our ultimate confidence is in Jesus Christ, his truth is also of great importance. One commentator said that most Christians do not have the courage of their convictions because they have no clear convictions. We have got to have convictions. We've all heard the saying, if you stand for nothing, you will fall for anything. Folks, before we put our life on the line for what we believe, we must know what we believe and then believe it. If we do, this will give us great courage. As Christians, Paul has told us we do not need to be ashamed or afraid or timid. There's no good reason. If you're not a Christian, you need to be afraid. You have nothing at all of the blessings that Paul has just reminded Timothy of. You have nothing but yourself and your attempt at good works. The Bible says that all of our good works are as filthy rags. They will accomplish us nothing when the day of judgment arrives. Do you want to be sure of your eternal destiny? If you want to know Jesus Christ and how to have a sincere faith and all the resources available through the Holy Spirit, then I would strongly encourage you to speak to someone today. But don't wait. For today is the day of salvation. For those of us who are Christians, I want to tell you a story. There was a lady who died in 1916, that's over 103 years ago, named Hetty Green. <clears throat> she was called America's greatest miser. When she died, she left an estate valued at $100 million. She was so miserly that she ate cold oatmeal in order to save the expense of heating the water. When her son had a severe leg injury, she took so long trying to find a free clinic to treat him that his leg had to be amputated because of advanced infection. She was so afraid of losing her wealth, she didn't use the seemingly infinite riches that were available to her. As Christians, do we act like that? 
Are we so ashamed or afraid that we forget the infinite riches, resources, and power available to us through Jesus Christ? Do we forget that it's the gospel that we're sharing? The greatest news ever told? Satan has a purpose for our fear, and he is a master at using our fears to defeat us. I know life can be hard. It can be very hard and difficult. Life can become scary and intimidating. I realize there are pressures at work and at home, pressures to conform to the world's standards. I know also that sometimes people do not respond well to what we have to say. We are not in control of other people or even of our own lives. And that can make things even more scary. A lot of the time, it's easier just to say and do nothing, to just curl up and hide from the world. You know, Satan uses that spirit of fear or cowardice to keep us from serving God and from becoming and being an effective Christian. Many times we do not share our faith with someone because we fe- of fear. We say, what will they think of me? What if I turn them off? What if I mess up? They probably won't listen to me anyway. God knows that we are fearful. He knows our hearts. That's one of the reasons he gave us this passage. We need to remember our heritage in Christ, our resources in Christ, the spiritual gift we possess, and the power of God available to us in Christ. And then remember, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are talking about. And then be convinced that he whom we believe is able to guard the deposit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are able. Father, we ask that you forgive us for being fearful or timid or even cowardly. Father, help us to remember all that we have been blessed with through your Holy Spirit and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be bold as we share the gospel. Help us not to be afraid. Help us not to be ashamed. Father, we ask this now. In Jesus' name, amen.